The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter mission control specialists. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 18, A Geek on Mars, and we'll be talking with writer Andy Weir about his debut novel, The Martian, out now in hardcover from Crown Publishing. But first, I want to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit generationsgeek.com, which provides handy links to all of our shows on the Chronic Rift Network. Email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. Andy Weir, welcome to Generations Geek. Thanks. We have a lot to talk about, mostly about The Martian, of course, but uh, to start out, I would like to get just a little bit of background about you. you know, what did you go to school for? Uh, what's your day job? That kind of stuff. I went to school uh, to be a computer programmer, and um, that is my day job. I've been doing that for about 25 years. You know, I really actually like it quite a lot. I never imagined that I'd be uh, turning writing into a career, but it looks like that could happen. So <laughs> kind of exciting to have a career change at 41. Obviously, The Martian is a pretty geeky novel. Were you always watching sci-fi, reading sci-fi? Absolutely. I've been a geek from day one. Uh, my dad is a particle physicist, so wow. basically <laughs> Power I was geek. raised this way. <laughs> I remember being too young to really follow the dialogue of Star Trek, but my dad sitting me in front of it and like explaining things. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so definitely I was indoctrinated. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I started as well, meaning Star Trek. I didn't have a scientist father, but Star Trek captured me very early in life, like first or second grade, and it's been, uh, I've gone down that road ever since. And then I think Star Trek was really what uh, brought Ella into the yeah. fold as well. I started showing her the uh, old animated version of Star Trek when she was three or four. Yes. And <laughs> I remember watching that. <laughs> Although really, uh, while I do love Star Trek, I, I am first and foremost a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> Big time. I don't know. I, um... Because I haven't seen any of classic Who, so when people start talking about it, I feel awkward because I've only seen the like the most recent season. Well, well yeah. you're certainly not alone. That's <laughs> a, a lot of people, you know, who have only seen the new ones, and the uh, the old ones are kind of painful to watch if you're used to really high production values and stuff in the new ones. But uh, but I've I've seen them all. I've seen every Doctor Who that still exists. <laughs> I haven't gone back to watch the old school ones. I really do want to go back and start at the beginning and work my way through but it's a pretty hefty time investment so I don't know when I'll get to that yeah. but I think that Ella you qualify as a Whovian even if you <laughs> haven't seen the uh, the classic shows it's fine to categorize yourself as a Doctor Who fan if you've only seen from 2005 onward it's it's a great show and you know it's now in its what it's now been running for about nine years in its own right which is longer than most TV series get to do at all yeah. so I've never bought into the snobby behavior. It's like, oh, if you haven't seen Classic Who, you're not a Who fan. And yeah. If you like Doctor Who, you're a Doctor Who fan. And we went to the 50th anniversary episode in 3D in the theaters, so I think that uh, is a good qualification. 
Nice. Since you were a sci-fi kid from the get-go, did you write uh, sci-fi stuff as well when you were young, or is that a, a much more recent? No, I wrote it when I was young, too. I think I first started writing stories, oh, shoot, I don't know, when I was like 10. I first started writing coherent stories when I was about 14, <laughs> and, I mean, they were terrible, but I was writing and getting experience and learning how to do that. I really wanted to, um, I mean, really, I wanted to be a writer all along. Mm -hmm. I just um, wasn't really willing to take the risk, you know, later in life, I didn't really want to take the risk for, with my personal finances of being, you know, a broke writer. Yeah. So, and of course, I was a computer programmer by trade, and that pays pretty well. So I, I chose to uh, go where the money was. But in uh, the mid-90s, I worked for AOL, or late 90s, and I got laid off, and they gave me a really good severance package. Uh so good that I realized I could spend a couple of years unemployed if I wanted. So I took a shot nice. at being a writer then. And I, I took three years off and I wrote a book and uh, I couldn't get any traction, couldn't get anyone interested in it. And I said like, well, I tried and then went back into computer programming. So that first book, you were pursuing that traditional publishing? You were trying to send it around to agents or publishers or something? Yeah, I was trying to get an agent for it, which okay. is uh, you know what, what you did back then. Um, well, it's still what you do now, but back then there, there wasn't this. There was there were no ebooks, or if there were, yeah. there was they were not in, at all market penetrated, right? And self publishing. I mean, there really wasn't much of a worldwide web presence at the time. There wasn't even the notion of I'll just post this up on my you know blog or anything. There weren't blogs. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And so, well, to be fair, the book that I wrote wasn't that good. Mm -hmm. I, I also wrote a book before that in college that was very ungood. So. <laughs> <laughs> the Martian is actually the third book I've written. Talking about uh, blogs and, and the web and stuff, this would be then a good time to talk about uh, fan fiction and self-publishing because you did go down Both those, those roads. things. Yeah. So why don't you tell us first a little bit about your fanfic writing. When did you start that? A little bit of fanfic writing, not too heavy. Uh, well, and, and, and we're back to Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. I had a... I wrote some fan fiction centering around the character Romana. I posted it up on my site. I wrote those a long time ago. In fact, I wrote them before the new series started. And so the canon in my Romana fan fiction is as of the end of the classic series, so it doesn't really fit anymore. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> then I've also written a few stories that are um, Sherlock Holmes fan fiction centering around Moriarty. I like to do that. I like to take, you know, I like to write fan fiction about characters other than the main character mm -hmm. like to, I, I don't know maybe it's just um I, I i don't want to have to write within the constraints of a well-defined character so I, yeah. I pick a character who's just kind of like on the periphery and then i can define whatever i want but that was written uh, strictly within conan doyle's yeah uh, i tried world. to emulate the doyle style of narration and, and do you watch the uh either of the shows that are on now, the contemporary set versions, Elementary or Sherlock? Yes, both of them. I'm a big fan of both of them. I'm, I'm just a big fan of the Sherlock Holmes genre and mythos yeah. in general. You can probably expect me to watch anything Sherlock-related that comes out. <laughs> yeah, we're big Holmes fans ourselves, and we haven't actually been watching Elementary, but we're raving Sherlock fans, uh. and we like the Robert Downey Jr. movies, even though they're... I liked him too, even though they kind of departed from the genre yeah. a bit. People kind of panned it, and he doesn't really act like the, uh, the the Holmes of the books. But whatever, he's 
it's fun stuff. Good homes. It's, it's open to interpretation, right? Much as I love the modern incarnations, the Jeremy Brett ones from oh. Annie, those are just the best. Jeremy Brett totally rules. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> He's Holmes. Why don't we move toward The Martian? You did something with that on your own first, right? I kind of backed into traditional book deal by having almost every step go backwards from, from the way it normally goes. So the first <laughs> thing I did was I, I wrote it in serial form. So I was posting one chapter at a time to my, uh, to my website. And so I had some regular readers and a mailing list, and um, that was going along fine. I never imagined it to go any further than that, but events kept conspiring to push it along, which is great. I'm really happy. So basically, I, I published them um, one chapter at a time until I finished the book. And then I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to move on to writing some other story. And people liked the, uh, people liked the story, and some people would email me and say, you know, I like the story, but I really hate reading it in a browser can you make an EPUB or a Mobi format that I could download and put on my e-reader? Mm-hmm. And so I said, sure. And so I made an e- both an EPUB and a Mobi format and posted them on my website and said, there you go, guys, knock yourself out. And then I got more email from other people saying, hey, I really appreciate that you put up an e-reader version, but I'm not very technically savvy, and it's kind of complicated to download some, you know, to download an e-reader file from the web and then get it onto my Kindle. There's a bunch of steps I don't really understand. Can you just put it up on Amazon Kindle so that I could just push a button and have their system give it to me? So I did, and I, I figured out how to do that, and Amazon requires that you charge at least 99 cents. It's the, the minimum price yep. because, of course, they're not in this for, you know, just to be nice. This is the <laughs> business model, right? <laughs> So I, I posted it on Amazon, and I said, like, hey, everybody, it's up on Amazon Kindle now. Here's the link, or you can just search for it from your Kindle. Um, it costs 99 cents because I couldn't make it free, and I couldn't make it cost any less. So <laughs> if you're willing to pay a dollar to have Amazon deliver this to your Kindle, there you go. If you don't want to do that, the, the EPUB's still on my website. And a lot more people paid a buck to get it than chose to go get it for free from my site. Mm-hmm which just kind of shows you the how well into their customer base Amazon is, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so that started making like non-trivial amounts of money for me. I would get something like 30 cents a copy, but it was really starting to add up. <laughs> yeah. And um, it also worked its way up the lists. Um, so there's the top 10 sellers in sci-fi kind of thing. And that caused a snowball effect because once you get on that list, well, that's the list that people go to when they're, kind of browsing and say, like, I don't know what to get. So that drove more sales. Anyway, the sales were very high, and the uh, lots of people were reading it, and it got to the attention of, a, of, a, of an editor at Random House, at Crown Publishing, which is part of Random House. And he read it, and he liked it, and then he decided, hey, I want to... I, I might want to make this guy an offer for a print deal, but I'm going to give this book to a colleague of mine uh, in the industry and see what he thinks. And that colleague was a, is a literary agent guy. And he gave it to the literary agent and said, like, hey, I want you to read this book and tell me what you think. It's by an unpublished author, and I'm thinking about you know, making a print edition of this. And the literary agent said, well, I'm going to warn you, buddy, that uh, this is an unpublished author, so he probably doesn't have an agent. If I like this book, I'm going to go become that guy's agent, and then I'm going to be on the other side of the negotiating table from you. <laughs> so is that okay with you before I read this book? <laughs> and the editor said, sure, no problem. They have, they've, they've known each other for a long time, and they've often negotiated deals. you know. Yeah. 
And um, so he read it and he liked it. And so then the literary agent contacted me and said, hey, uh, you want a literary agent? Because I'm pretty sure I could sell your book to a major publisher. <laughs> <laughs> and so everything went backwards for me. It's like, first, first I, I put it up there for free. Then I put it up there for sale, you know, for ebook publishing. Then a publisher took interest. Then an agent contacted me. <laughs> this must have just blown your mind. Really? It did. <laughs> and it was... Um, well, it was, so from my point of view, I didn't, didn't know any of that stuff was going on in the background. I was very happy and surprised at how well it was selling on Amazon Kindle. And, and, and more from a, I don't know, you know, getting a high score kind of thing. I was happy yeah. to see how many people were reading it. Then the agent contacted me and said, like, hey, you want an agent? And I looked him up, and he's a, a well-known, you know, a respected agent. He's not just mm -hmm. some random guy. And I'm like, sure, I could use an agent. And then he <laughs> almost immediately comes back with this offer from Random House that's, big it's it's you know the it's a, a really good advance that <laughs> i was not expecting i wasn't expecting that many digits even yeah and you and, had already uh, been making money from the uh, self-published version right and then so they come back with an advance that was like more than my annual salary <laughs> and i was pretty surprised by that yeah. <laughs> and i'm like uh tell them i said yes <laughs> you're one of these handful of success stories that's happening in the, the the new world of publishing like Hugh Howey he's the author of wool he has pretty much the same story I mean I mean the same story of publishing not the same book yeah <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it's really interesting to see what's going on in publishing it, it also can be frustrating for for writers because everything is different if you go out and buy a how to get published book from even just a few years ago, it's all the advice is going to be the old school way, and now there's all these different ways of breaking in. I think it's really gotten a lot better for authors, in my opinion, and I have, like, you know, my empirical evidence of trying to break into the industry before the internet really was a factor, and, mm -hmm. then, and then bungling into the industry afterward, and it's really become a pure meritocracy, right? It's like, if you write a story that's good, you, you will now succeed. It, it used to be, if you go, you know, to the days before the internet, it, yeah. publishers had to make a careful decision, and they didn't really have the luxury of taking risks on authors, and because you know it costs them a lot of money to make a book, so they want to they want to really make sure that it's going to sell at least enough to recoup the money they spent on it. You make a good point that there are a lot more opportunities for authors, and a lot of publishers are starting to realize that they can look at these self-published authors and. It's almost like being an NFL scout watching uh, promising college football players, right? Yeah, yeah. Just like, let's let's see who's good out there and then make them offers. And there's this whole system in place. That now it's like you write a book, you post it up on Kindle. If people like it, they'll recommend it to their friends, et cetera, and it'll, it'll, it'll go up in ratings. And then, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, the crowdsourced rating system that yeah. all, the, all the major booksellers have basically does their job for them. Now, to continue your fabulous success with this, I saw somewhere online, is this accurate? Has the book been optioned? Yes, uh, 20th Century Fox has optioned the movie rights. Fabulous. Yeah, well, to bear, bear in mind, uh, uh, a lot of people, uh, I'm guessing you know the distinction, but for your listeners, yeah. <laughs> um, 
people often get confused between the difference between optioning movie rights and buying movie rights. Yeah. Optioning movie rights means they now have the exclusive right to buy the movie rights. So what right. we did, the way it works is you work out this big, complicated contract that was 30-some-odd pages and <laughs> was um, very deeply detailed, and there were lots of lawyers and agents involved. Yep. And that's the whole film rights purchase contract. But none of it is in... None of it is enforced yet. Yep. What they do is they have the option now to exercise that contract, and no one else is allowed to buy them. I'm not allowed to sell the movie rights to anyone yep. else. And so they've attached Drew Goddard to be the director, to, to be the screenplay writer and director. You may know him. He wrote uh, Cabin in the Woods and Cloverfield. He wrote some episodes of Lost and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm a fan of no, a number of those things. Cabin in the Woods was very clever. Yeah, yeah I thought so too. And he has written the screenplay for it, and Fox has looked at it, and now they're trying to see what, what performers might be interested in, in being it. Well, it's a very filmic story. I could see, uh, This would translate to the screen really well, yeah. I think. I think so, too, but I'm really biased. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's dig into the novel a little bit. We don't want to be too spoilerific. Why don't you just give us your short picture synopsis it's the story of an astronaut who gets stranded on mars he was part of a six-person crew and a uh, sandstorm came up and they had to evacuate and during the evacuation he gets injured in such a way that all the rest of his crew are convinced beyond a doubt that he's dead and so they have to leave without him or they risk getting stranded there themselves and uh once he wakes up on mars having survived the injury he realizes that his crew is gone, they all think he's dead, and the sandstorm destroyed his ability to communicate with Earth or with the uh, or with the, the ship that his crew is on. And so he's completely on his own and desperately trying to survive. How did you get the idea for it? As we discussed earlier, I'm a geek, and so one thing I was doing is one day I was sitting around speculating on, okay, how could we do a Mars mission? Like, you know, like we, NASA, whatever. And I thought, okay, well, here's a good way to do a Mars mission. You send all your stuff there in advance. You send the return ship in advance. And I'd, it's just a, that's the sort of thing I like to do and I like to think about. And whenever you're designing any sort of space mission, you need to account for failure scenarios. Okay, what if this fails? What if that fails? Make sure that your mission can account for that. Make sure that the astronauts can survive or make sure, if nothing else, they can abort the mission and get home safely. And so I was coming up with all these disaster scenarios and I, thought, well, imagine this happened. Well, they asked the crew could do that. Imagine this happens. The crew could do that. And it started to occur to me that these disaster scenarios make a pretty interesting story. So I made one poor victimized main character to have to deal with all of them. <laughs> I thought the setup worked really well. It's, it's very uh, believable that this special confluence of events, sort of the perfect storm kind of thing, would end up with the guy being left behind and no one realizing that he was alive. Uh, that was a, a, a great opening. Thanks. I was curious because the tone of the novel is very almost uh, silly because the main character is just like this sarcastic guy. Yep. And even though the tone was a little bit more happy, not really, but <laughs> it was still very emotionally impacting. So how did you make the decision to have the main character be like just be making jokes while he's stranded on another planet instead of having it be a very, like, almost more of a dark novel? 
I made that conscious decision early on. I had to decide, you know, what what I wanted the tone to be, and I didn't want it to be this, uh, you know, this study in human misery. I mean, it, you know, like oh, I'm doomed and oh, I'm so lonely that you know I'm stranded here, and I I didn't want that. I just wanted a lighthearted story, and really I wanted it to focus on the problem solving. So I didn't want to I. I didn't want to bring the reader down, you know, I wanted the reader to be kind of like looking at a peppy story that moves through also, um, in a first person narration, which is, you know, effectively what it is. It's mostly told through log entries. The exposition can get really boring. And so having a smart ass explain everything with jokes and stuff like that keeps things moving along, keeps the reader, you know, gives the reader a little giggle as they're learning about how to deal with, you know, hydrazine reduction to liberate the hydrogen so that it can make water. And so that stuff would be really boring if it was told by a guy who's just a more realistic character, maybe, who's, like, miserable and desperate and just describing what he did in sort of a monotone. Love what you do with it, too. It's really great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that was a very effective choice. I think a third-person novel probably would have had to be a darker approach. And we by... can't even tell that story in third person because it's just one guy. So unless he gets in the habit of talking to himself, it would be just, <laughs> then he went over and did this. Then he went over and did that. Then he went. Yeah. Well, and I, <laughs> I'm, I, not, I, I, I'm sure there are writers who could pull that off and make it fun and compelling because they're just such good narrators, but I'm, I, I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that, from a traditional third-person viewpoint, you probably would have had a more com- complete rendering of his thoughts that would have, you would have gotten those moments that are more depressing or bleak. But by having it be first-person logs, and because of the nature of the character, it's very believable that he doesn't record his worst days. He's he's right. he's going you know the, the nature of of this character is that he kind of looks on the bright side he makes a snarky joke and he just keeps plugging along and it's for for me I found it to be realistic because I could still imagine as a reader that there were times when he was sitting around being depressed being feeling hopeless. But those are the days that he doesn't talk about. Those are the days that he doesn't write a log. How much research did you have to do for it? Because um, I came across an article just like while I was doing my thing on the internet, you know, (laughs) Um, that was talking about how a person could survive healthily on a diet of just potatoes with supplements occasionally of butter and milk because those have vitamins that potatoes don't. And I almost laughed out loud (laughs) because I... (laughs) Um, I did a lot of research for this. In fact, one of the hardest things for me was, I don't know how to put it, like I'd done all this research, done all the math and solved all these problems, and I wanted to brag to the reader about it, right? <laughs> Deep down, I want to say, like, look, look, reader, look what I did. I, I, I worked all this out, and yeah. now I want you to see how awesome I am. But, you know, the things I worked out that weren't directly relevant to the story, I, I had to leave them alone. and yep. Or I'd make a passing reference to so, like, for instance, it's mentioned early on in the story that, oh, it took us 124 days to get from Earth to Mars. Well, I didn't pull that number out of a hat. I, I when designing the mission, I, I realized the only, or in my opinion, the only way to really get a large, heavy spacecraft to Mars is to use ion engines, 
which is a technology that exists today, although it's in its infancy. And they have a really, really good um, reactant mass um, effect. So, in other words, the total mass of the fuel you need for an ion engine is considerably less than everything else. So it makes it much more plausible to go really long distances. Um, but it has a very, very low acceleration, like extremely low. Mm -hmm. But you power it with a nuclear reactor, and it'll just keep accelerating. So you have this ship that has this extremely slight you know, push on it all the time, but it's on for months. And so calculating an accelerating orbit is beyond my mathematical abilities. So I wrote, but I am a computer programmer. So I wrote a simulation, an orbital simulator that would deal. And, and I tried various courses for the, uh, for their ship and figured out how to get them to Mars and match Mars's velocity and position. And then, well, the original mission plan is for them to be on Mars for like 31 days and then return. And so I worked out that flight plan. So I did all that in advance and that took me like a week of work. I was, you know, writing this software and then constantly trying different courses and trying to narrow in on something that'll work. And then finally I got it done and that was great. But I, 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 there's no way I can put my little animation of ships flying around our solar system in, <laughs> you know, to the, to the book. And so that just manifests as it took us 124 days to get to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to be careful about the level of detail that you present. You do the math, you work everything out, you find something cool, you're like, this is cool. It makes me feel, it, it gives you that feeling of, wow, this is cool. And you want your reader to have that same feeling. You, mm -hmm. want, you want your reader to be reading your book and say like, wow, that's cool. But, you know, maybe your reader isn't as interested in orbital dynamics <laughs> as you are, which is the case for me. So, but it was cool because I was able to use my simulation not just to figure out like the course they took and all the altered courses as, as they kept changing plans throughout the book. But also, I, I wrote a little thing that would keep track of for any given day in the mission, it would tell me how far apart Earth and Mars were because I had to yep. go back, mm -hmm. I had to start them out at a launch window, how far apart Earth and Mars are on any given date and how far apart Earth is from Hermes and how far Mars is from Hermes. Uh, oh, for the, read, for the listeners who may not know, uh, Hermes is the ship that the main characters took to get to and from Mars. And um, so then I could figure out what the transmission delay was. And uh -huh. so that was another thing that I was able to put in just kind of subtly. They're like, oh, yeah, we're, we sent a message off to Hermes and, you know, the, they'll get it in four minutes and 32 seconds. And that just seems like a background number that I made up in the story. And it doesn't really take up the reader's time, but it's actually accurate. <laughs> <laughs> was there a piece of research that you found that was really amazing that you weren't able to work in at all? There was one thing that I, that I worked out that I, I couldn't put in. Um, basically, so I told you, you know, just, just all, all the, launch, the orbital path stuff. Mm -hmm. I also had to choose a launch date such that Earth and Mars were in the correct positions because Earth and Mars, you can, you can predict where they're going to be from now till 10 million years from now, right? I mean, yep. it's, and so I needed to come up with a launch date. And so choosing that launch date was interesting because I said like, okay, the launch date has to be such that they will be on Mars during Thanksgiving for plot reasons that I won't go into, but you know yep. why. And so I'm like, okay, so they have to be on Mars during Thanksgiving and they're going to use this path I came up with. So let's go back and Earth and Mars need to be this angle apart at the start, and I back calculate everything, and then of course it needs to be some decent amount of time into the future. It can't be like 2015 yeah. that they launch, right? And so I back calculated that, and so then I, I figured out the launch date. And so from there, every part of the story, I know the exact date 
the exact real world date that it's taking place in because everything's numbered. It's like, oh, solve 284. And so I can work out from there what the actual date is. Anyway, there's a part of the story where NASA or a bunch of NASA guys are at JPL and stuff like that. And it happened to take place just by pure coincidence, the way things worked out on Valentine's Day. And it was like, oh, that's February 14th. And I was thinking, how could I work that in? That's kind of neat that it happens to be Valentine's Day. I was mm-hmm. thinking, well, you got a big room full of, uh, you know, nerds in a, in a control room in JPL that was hastily set up to work on stuff. And I was thinking somebody might say, oh, it's too bad. This had to be on Valentine's Day. I didn't want to spend my Valentine's Day at work. And someone else would be like, yeah, as if anybody here has a date. <laughs> right. And I thought that'd be a good joke and stuff. But from the reader's point of view, it would look like I just completely crammed that in. Yeah. Like, the reader would think that I just arbitrarily decided it was Valentine's Day and made a stupid joke, and then that goes by. The reader wouldn't understand that I can actually prove this is Valentine's Day. <laughs> well, so now they know. <laughs> I had to just let it go. You have to have all that stuff going on in your head so that what you present to the reader has the, you know, just all holds together in a believable way. Being the geek I am, I actually, I love the research. I, I, I just, I really enjoy that part. And... It's a lot easier because it's all deterministic. It's like, okay, right now I'm working out exactly a process for reducing hydrazine to, to liberate hydrogen. You know, that's that's easy. I can do that. That's just math and chemistry, and I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, then I sit at my computer and I say, now I have to explain that to a reader, and that's all subjective and kind of artistic and stuff. And I'm like, there's no, there's, I, I wish I could just, you know, do some sums and out would come the writing, but. <laughs> I'm doing the research now for my next novel or you know we'll we'll see where you know I'm going yeah. to write up a pitch for the novel and we'll we'll see if publishers are interested in it but yeah so I'm doing all the research and legwork for that now and I'm really having a ball with it and I assume it's another uh, science uh, fictiony tech yep, story another hard science fiction novel now that you mention the, that phrase hard science fiction when you were growing up and reading science fiction did you did you tend toward reading, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke and the people that wrote the, the harder nuts and bolts kind of fiction? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I also liked the soft sci-fi. My, my favorite authors growing up were uh, Heinlein, Clarke, and Asimov, mm-hmm. and, and Niven. I, I really like oh, Larry yep. Niven. Okay. And, um, and so there, there are varying levels of hard sci-fi. You go to the uh, classic Heinlein, which is what I like more, the stuff from the 50s and 60s, I guess I guess. I'm probably going to misuse this term, but I think they're called juveniles. Yeah, some uh, of his work back then was, were, yeah, they were classified as such. Right. And um, that was actually, like, pretty hard sci-fi. I mean, occasionally there'd be aliens or something like that, but it was always about, like, oh, you know, there's a ship that goes from Earth to Mars, and it takes a long time, and it spins to create gravity. He didn't have, like, warp drive or artificial yeah. gravity and stuff like that. So I really like that. Arthur C. Clarke, of course, I love... Pretty much everything. Asimov was a is much more soft science fiction. I mean, yep. mostly I, I liked his robots mm-hmm. uh, genre, and so that's you know that's a little bit okay. We have like kind of magic robot brains that we're not going to explain you know, <laughs> the positronic matrix, which I mean I loved all of it. So oh, yeah. it doesn't have to be hard science fiction for me to like it. Larry Niven would have like I guess it's almost like a hybrid, right? Because the thing you take something like Ringworld, that's it's, it's this really fantastical thing, right? It's like a, a ring that is like almost an Earth diameter wide that circles a star. I mean, it's this huge 
Yeah. That's the thing that we, you would probably have to give mankind like 10,000 years of technological, technological advancement at our current rate before we could do anything like that. So it's very, very soft sci-fi. But then it also, the book goes into explain like, you could build this thing out of uh, something that has about the same mass as Jupiter. And here's how, you know, and, and you could assemble molecules such that you could make shadow square wire. And I, I don't know, I just, uh, I would get a really kick, a really big kick out of it when something appears to be soft sci-fi turns out to be pretty well explained by the author. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, uh, so one of the greatest moments of my life was when we got uh, reader feedback from Larry Niven. Oh, nice. He liked the book. Oh, that's great. And I'm like, Larry Niven read and liked my book. <laughs> I grew up reading his books. <laughs> one thing I really liked is um, Ben Bova's Mars. Oh, yeah. I haven't read that one. I like that. That was pretty hard sci-fi. Like, wasn't that the terraforming? No, that that's Red Mars. That's, oh. uh, that's Kim Stanley Robinson. Yep, yep. I'm mixing up my Mars books. Yeah, it's easy to do. <laughs> um but yeah, Ben Bova's Mars is about a manned mission to Mars, and um, and I I thought it had what I thought was just an awesome, um, well, what I consider just a, a great moment in hard science fiction. But I I don't feel comfortable saying it on the show because it is sort of a a, a major plot resolution in the book, so I don't want to spoil okay. the book for anybody. But just they were all getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and evidence kept pointing to maybe they got a disease from Mars. Mm-hmm. And the way that plot resolved, I thought, was just excellent, excellent writing. I thought it was just great. I assume, then, that you would fully support a uh, crewed mission to Mars. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, you bet. <laughs> so, so here's my follow-up question to that. If you got the phone call from NASA and they said, we want you to be our uh, in-house writer on Mars, would, would you go? I, 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 I mean, I know you, you're probably not expecting this answer, but no, I, I just, I do not have the, the bravery required to be an astronaut, and I never will. I can, I can sit comfortably at home and write stories about other people who are brave, but I wouldn't do it. Uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'd no, be too I'm, scared. yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely surprised because I, that's kind of the way I feel too. As, <laughs> as geeky as I am, as much as I love space, as much as I think we should have more people in space uh, just the launch alone would terrify me right. let I mean, alone the months of travel through hard vacuum <laughs> yeah. it's it is just terrifying I mean, astronauts are a cut above normal people I mean, yes it just it has to be said and so at some point in the future you know and in fact i think at some point in our lives um there will be commercial space travel mm -hmm. and they will make it you know i mean Right now, astronauts have to uh, have to endure such forces on the ascent. It's 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 insane. You, if you imagine that happening to you, it'd be just miserable. But someday they'll have commercial space travel. The ascent will be smoother. Maybe just take longer, or you know, at the cost of more fuel, or or maybe they'll get you know aeronautical stuff involved, so yeah. that you know it's more of a flight, <laughs> you know, for a while and before the rockets kick in. That's what that's what Virgin Galactic is working on. Yep. Um, and so things might be more like a commercial plane flight. And then, you know, it might be a bit better now. But, but the concept of being an actual astronaut, like those guys who are just in a much more dangerous situation than you are when you're sitting comfortably on a 747 having your third glass yes. of champagne. Yeah, no, I can't see myself doing that.
Yeah, you know, if if the uh, Starship Enterprise came along, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'd be exactly. on that in in you a beam second. Beam me up, I'll be happy to serve yeah. as a crewman on the Enterprise. But uh, <laughs> but going up in the tin can. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> that was a bit. That was a big moment for me too when we got feedback from uh, Chris Hadfield. Oh wow! Yeah, he get he got a, he gave us a quote and it's on it's it'll be on the back of the book blurbs from various people and. Commander Hadfield gave us one, and I'm like, hey, Commander Hadfield read my book. And liked it. <laughs> so we're hoping that uh, our listeners uh, all rush out and buy the book, because the uh, the book it's will be... It's worth it. Yep, and, and the, <laughs> book, the book will be out by the time the podcast uh, airs, so everyone can rush out uh, and buy it. Did you have a, uh, a website or anything that you want to uh, point our listeners to? andyweir.com would be good. Um, all, all that has right now is just, you know, hey, go buy The Martian. <laughs> I mean, there's always my, my, my casual writing site. It's, it's not something I actively push on people. It's really more of just a place for me to dump stuff. You know, like I've got a bunch mm-hmm. of short stories up there. It's, it's very unprofessional also. It's just, well, you've seen it. It's just it's white background, school. black text, and blue links. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's a naked site. I think they, 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 they would like me to, you know, the publisher and my agent would, would like me to make that site something a little bit less bare bones. There are so many details to, uh, for yeah. a modern writer to try to keep track of. You know, am I, am I blogging enough? How's my website look? Uh, how many Facebook followers do I have? How do we, you know, there's all this, this whole extra layer of things that you have to juggle to tr- be a successful writer these days. But As I'm learning. Yes. Um, but then, so when I put... When I put up the Martian, I didn't. I, I never made any attempt to market the Martian or mm-hmm. get people to read it. I just posted it on my website and then later to Kindle. I never, I never did anything. Yeah. And uh, ran, that's one of the things that the editor at Random House was really surprised by because he said that's the first time I've ever seen a self-published writer who did nothing to publish <laughs> his book. <laughs> and so now they had to they had to say like, okay, since uh, you haven't been doing this, we've got to tell you this is. This is some stuff you need to do. You need to go have like a, you need to have a Facebook page. You need to have like a presence online. You need to do things. <laughs> yep. Definitely the upside of it is the kind of immediate contact you can have with your readers is amazing. Yeah. Well, you that's know? one of the things that uh, was great about when I was writing The Martian and posting it one chapter at a time, I would get feedback every single chapter, mm-hmm. um, which was great. First off, um, my, you know, smart-ass fans would immediately find any errors and, <laughs> and also any uh, more, more important to me than grammatical errors or anything because one good copy editor takes care of all of that yeah. um, was science errors, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, not too surprisingly, I have a, a following of nerds, you know, <laughs> in, in the same way that I myself am a nerd. And so we, there, there were guys out there checking my numbers. <laughs> yeah, and you know so I'd get feedback someone would say like hey uh, this isn't right wouldn't it be like that and so it was great it was like having thousands of copy editors at, at each chapter of the book so by the time yeah. I was done it was pretty pretty solid on the science um, I won't have that in, in future books because I won't be posting them a chapter yep. at a time going the more traditional route is there anything about the Martian that you would like to, to touch upon before we wrap up the show here I'm just really excited by it. Just uh, just yesterday, I got the uh, first copies. They sent me a couple of copies of the final. So mm-hmm. these are 
these are from the they're they're doing their print runs now and yep. so i have now two copies of the hardback and i'm like just it's just such a kick to see that <laughs> you know this is what the actual customers will have this, this yeah right here and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> oh it's always a great thing that that uh first time that you get get copies from the publisher yeah it's uh pretty cool that never gets old <laughs> you know it's like oh now it's really real but yeah i was actually a little i was a little afraid i'm like okay this is the final if i open it up and find out that they you know what if i find out they accidentally you know made all the text italic or something you know? <laughs> like i don't even know but if i find a problem what if i find out, what if they misspelled my name <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks very much for coming on the show well thanks for having me we both enjoyed uh, the book quite a bit and you know, fingers crossed, we look forward to sitting down in the theater and seeing the uh, on-screen version sometime down the road. Well, that'd be pretty cool. Thanks. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 19, Ashes and Shadows and Monsters, Oh My. We'll be talking with author Ilsa J. Bick about her various books, including her post-apocalyptic Ashes trilogy. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from outside the Matrix. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>